Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. recorded here uh can you please one by one starting with homer introduce yourselves uh what you do in the band and where you are okay uh, my name is homer steinweiss uh i am the drummer for the Menahan street band and i'm in long island city new york uh my name is tom brennick i'm the guitarist and uh producer of Menahan street band and i'm in altadena california uh, I'm so glad that you guys are finally uh, putting out a new record. Uh, I listened to it the last few days, and it's just awesome, man. I really thank uh, you. I was thank telling you. Homer that there's something about instrumental music that's super needed. I think for our headspace right now, like it's it's something that can flow in and out of your day. You're making dinner, you put on MSB, you have some drinks, it's still on. You're like going to bed, hanging out with your <laughs> wife. It's like romantic and groovy, and it all flows from one part of your day into the other totally fine and i i've just really been uh, enjoying this new collection of sounds like the sound of these records is just the chemistry of the band and that chemistry hasn't really changed since the beginning and um even as more time goes on it's like certain things i noticed in the records that homer can definitely speak on but you know homer and leon our saxophone player, have been playing music together for so long. And Leon and Dave Guy write a lot of those horn lines. And there's something really, there's like a deep connection between the horn lines and the drum lines. And like any little accent Homer makes, kind of like Leon is so sensitive to pick up on it and make a melodic idea out of like a rhythmic idea. Hey folks, it's Zach here. You're listening to the show on the road, as you probably already know. And uh, this week, my conversation with Tom and Homer of the Menahan Street Band gives us a masterclass on how to create a vibe, how to instill an instant mood. It seems simple, but really, it's not. Take the sultry cut we're listening to right now, for example, The Devil's Respite. Now, it doesn't have words, it doesn't express any story, but... If I listen a little closer, I can see a movie unfolding right behind my eyelids. And if you think about it, jazz and the improvisational styles that came from jazz in the early 20th century out of New Orleans came as a springboard for the imagination. According to the BBC, dating back to 1860, there has been an African-American slang term called jazzum, which means vim or energy. It was on the 14th of November, 1916, that the New Orleans Times-Picayune newspaper referred for the first time to jazz bands. And that particular spelling, J-A-S, could have come from that word jasm, but perhaps it referred to the jasmine perfume that prostitutes in New Orleans' famed Storyville Red Light District often wore. And if you read about early jazz pioneers like Jelly Roll Morton, well, you'll know that his first gigs were accompanying ladies of the night and helping guys get in the mood. That's right, maybe you had a little trouble getting things going, so you had a little piano music to jazz things up. 
Now, I'm not saying that Thomas and Homer and the guys had this in mind when they were creating their first record in a decade, the exciting sounds of the Menahan Street Band, but you be the judge. What do you feel when you turn this on? If I close my eyes right now and let those horns play, I'm transported out of my back closet recording studio to a balcony in the south of France. A beautiful lady is sitting next to me and I can see the waves crashing in the distance. When it comes down to it, what these guys have created at Daptone Records over the last 20 years, well, it's nothing short of amazing. Only just recently have we come to appreciate the amazing backing bands that have created some of the greatest music of our time, including the Wrecking Crew in LA and the Swampers down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. All those hits by the Beach Boys and Aretha Franklin and Paul Simon, well, they had a band behind them, and you may not know who they are. And maybe 20, 30 years from now, we might look back at what they've created at Daptone Records, including Sharon Jones and Charles Bradley, Budo's band, and then branching out to folks like Amy Winehouse, and see that this is the greatest music of our generation. And the Menahan Street Band are my favorite part of it. It's like putting yourself inside a Scorsese film in the 70s. You feel glamorous and a bit dangerous, and it really gets you in the mood. For what exactly? Well, I'll leave that up to you. Anyway. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming on this sonic ride with me. And if you like this show, please leave us a kind review on iTunes. It helps people find us. And you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are broadcast. If you're curious, my band Dust Bowl Revival will be announcing some new festival dates in the summer. Yes, this summer, including Red Wing Roots, July 11th down in Virginia, and coming soon, the Philadelphia Folk Fest in August. And yes, it looks like we're coming back to Appaloosa Fest outside D.C. in Virginia. Don't forget, we're playing some California shows too. October 9th, Paramount Ranch in Agora Hills. There'll be a drive-in concert hosted by Tiny Porch Concerts and the main event December 4th at the Troubadour in L.A. Please get those tickets before they're gone. Okay, that's enough for me. Here they are now, Homer Steinweiss and Thomas Brennick of the Manahan Street Band. Do you feel like you guys are creating a cinematic soundscape backdrop for like uh, <laughs> a movie or a TV show or like an art piece in your mind when you start composing this stuff? Because we're trying to make we're trying to make music real. for Quentin Tarantino's mind, dog. Quentin's mind, not yeah. ours. <laughs> I just watched uh, True Romance for the first time last week. The first Actually, time. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, like totally missed that one. They like never it never fucking uh, got into my playlist. But I I was listening to your stuff and then listening and then watching True Romance last week. So that was kind of a fun combo. But <laughs> there are seventeen different things a guy can do when he lies to give himself away. Guy's got seventeen pantomimes. Woman's got twenty. Guy's got seventeen. But if you know them like you know your own face, they'd be lie detectors all to hell. Now what we got here. It's a little game of show and tell. You don't want to show me nothing, but you tell me everything. He's making one more film, right? We got one more. We got one chance to get into, into one of his films. True Romance, Quentin Tarantino. It's he wrote it. Uh, he wrote it. He didn't. Yeah, it was like his though, first. Right? It was his first script that got like. Uh, gotcha. Big attention. He's only making one more film, Tommy, and then he's quitting. That's what I heard. The tenth film, right? I didn't Why? know that. You guys haven't heard that? I didn't make that up. Maybe it's just a publicity stunt. I'm sure it's a publicity stunt, but 
I still think that it would be a good thing to think about getting music in that last film. <laughs> it's yeah. like Elton John. Elton John said he was retiring after every tour since 1986. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Jay-Z's been retired for like 15 years, right? That shit works. You say you're not going to do it again, and people are like, oh, I got to go. I got to go to this one. <laughs> the last time. It's like if the restaurant around the corner told me like they were never going to serve it again, I'd be like, okay, I'm in. Last meal. <laughs> Keep doing it. But a song like uh, Star Chaser for me feels like I turned on a 70s spy TV show that I had never seen before. And you have the guitar and the horn sort of egging each other on. And uh, when a song like that comes together, what is the spark? What is the the vision of the of that narrative? Or is it just sort of about melody and chords? Well, that, that song in particular was really kind of like we were trying to do like a Bollywood thing. Right, like there's this there's this famous Bollywood composer named R. D. Berman, okay. and I, I'm a huge fan of his music. And I remember cutting that track. It was we cut the rhythm track. I think just me, Nick, and Homer, and um, we just listened to a bunch of like Bollywood type of shit, and then just kind of approached it. You know, went for that, but then you know, being who we are and where we're from, we completely missed the mark on the Bollywood thing, and it just kind of came out sounding like a Menahan thing. But that was you know, trying to, to do like that Bollywood thing of it, the way it sounds and the big horns and the brassy horns, trombones and shit. And like, even like, you know, they would have the synthesizers blast on there on that music and shit. It was very much inspired by that. Homer takes a pretty wicked drum fill in that song, a drum solo in that song too. Yeah, that's, that's a first. That's a first for a drum solo. I've ever taken out a record. I think <laughs> <laughs> I've done drum breaks, but that's different. That's literally like a solo. This was like a John Bonham style. Moby it's Dick. more like it's more, <laughs> it's more like a surf. What's that surf song? Wipeout. It's more like a wipeout. Yeah, it's more like a wipeout. Yeah, so like wipe <laughs> bottom level. Just like that type of solo. It's a pocket solo. It's a pocket solo, yeah. <laughs> Homer's a pocket of, drummer. I don't know if you know that, if your listeners know that about Homer, but you can describe Homer as a pocket drummer. That's true. And that's I mean, what we call him the best the type. Because he's got the sickest fucking pocket. Is there uh, room for improvisation when you go into the studio with a song like Star Chaser? Is, is there moments where the form opens up or is, or is it pretty much set in stone when you start laying it down? Well, you got that drum solo and then you, that's followed by a trumpet solo. And I'd say those are probably, and that, uh, there might be a little bass movement too in, uh, in that part. But for the most part, otherwise it's like written ideas, you know, like the rhythm is, starts with the rhythm first and the bass line, the guitar riff I'm playing. I was going for like a Sid Barrett kind of thing. So that's like, it's actually a part 
you know, the horns are playing melodies that are parts. The only, yeah, the only really improvised thing would be those two, would be the drums and the trumpet solo that follows. I mean, that's like kind of all of our music is, we might like start, like we might be in a room sitting together and just, you know, be improvising and then like get on something that feels good and make a song out of it. But once we go to record a song, I think we're pretty, like we're, we have like a soft, like we're just looking for structure, you know what I mean? We're like based in structure, our whole style of making music. Well, that's what's interesting is I think on the outside, it seems like it's so loose and kind of flowing from one idea to the next. But as someone obviously who records with a horn section myself, I know how uh, needed that structure is for the improvisation. So they know what's coming. It's like a, a baseball manager putting the lineup just so, so they can shine on the field, you know? And when you guys create, you know, stuff that's in that Daptone universe, there's a certain sound that you create with the horns, especially. Did that come together after years of honing production sound and mic placement and reverbs? Like, how did that signature sort of Daptone-esque horn sound come to be? I mean, for me, there's each band has its own identifiable sound Daptone stable. So, like, if you were to say, what defines the Sharon Jones and the Dap King's horn section, it would be, you know, like the instrumentation. It's got the baritone sax, tenor and trumpet. You know, I mean, the arrangements are coming from different people, coming from Neil Sugarman, coming from Gabe Ross, coming from Dave. I mean, Dave kind of crosses over into Manahan Street Band, but the sound of the Menahan horns, I think is completely different because Leon and Dave's approach is completely different from a Sharon Jones or from a Budos band. Their two-part harmony, is like, first of all, on its own fucking wavelength. It's like their two-part harmony, what they do with the trumpet and tenor is completely like original and amazing. And it's probably like Leon's counterpoint against Dave's melodies. But like, if you've ever tried to like really figure out what the hell the horn section is doing on the Manahan Street Band record, you would find, I think, incredible harmonies in the horn section. And then, you know, like the Budos band, has a completely different sound. It's a baritone and two trumpets, and it's much more unison. It's much more based on fourths and fifths. You wouldn't find a third in a harmony there. So to me, they're like, they're, I know I, I can understand how somebody might hear it and be like, oh, it's a small horn section with a lot of reverb, and that's the sound of the fucking daptone horn section. But to me, it's like much deeper than that. I think there's a timelessness to what you guys have been creating. It feels like it could exist in the, you know, soul era, you know, in the 60s, 70s, but also it feels like totally natural, you know, being sampled in a Jay-Z song and a Kid Cutie song, Kendrick, um, these people that have used these um, sounds for years as part of modern hip hop, it feels totally natural in a way. And I think that's a really hard thing to uh, achieve. I mean, what is it like hearing that stuff being sampled by uh, artists like Jay-Z? Uh, it's like a really incredible form of flattery. Speech. First of all, I want to thank my connect. The most important person with all due respect. Thanks to the duffel bag, the brown paper bag, the Nike shoe box for holding all this cash. Okay. Hip hop is usually samples the dopest of classic soul music or psych music, or, or whatever a record digger might find and the hip hop producer might sample. And usually you wouldn't find something from the 90s or thousands being sampled by a hip hop producer. 
So to me, our records being sampled is just like a, is is just the the highest form of a compliment that we could get as a band trying to make classic records. What do you think, Holmes? Um, yeah, I feel the same way. I feel like yeah, even if the, even if some producers sampling all modern shit or whatever, if they sample your thing, it's it's a compliment. If somebody like Jason Sample samples our music, it's a bonus and it's also just like an audience that's like 150 times bigger than ours, you know what I mean? Or just like a thousand times bigger than our audience. So instantly it's just kind of like, I remember when Make the Road got sampled by Jay-Z and I was living in Bushwick, Brooklyn at the time and the shit was bumping on Hot 97 like every day, you know, the same time where Kanye had a hit with like Longer Stronger. And like the next song you would hear was Rock Boys. And you know, people just driving around Brooklyn blasting the shit out of their car. And it's like, it was was super exciting. And at the same time, like, you know, we remained totally in obscurity as this like unknown band from Brooklyn. But at the same time, it was the highest form of like flattery that we could ask for. And that's been happening like many times over, man, by all, lots of artists that I like respect, man. Absolutely, like recently, uh, YBN Corday sampled it on a pretty dope track. And, um, you know, and uh, we, we've become friends with certain producers who have sampled us, like our friend Frank Duke sampled us on a 50 Cent song a couple of years ago, and that led to a whole creative friendship. Um, there's like, there's a, there's a lot that comes from that, man. It's, 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 a, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. Do you guys make your living mostly as um, collaborators with other artists like you did with Charles Bradley? Um, or do you have... Um, you know, production connections with a bunch of other uh, people and, and, and royalty stuff is how you get by or, or like, especially right now when we're not able to really tour or, or play live traditionally, what is, what is the way that you guys are really known? I guess like mostly it's like royalties, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I've, I've stopped touring when my first son was born like seven years ago and I've been, you know, I live off of like publishing checks, man. I, as a songwriter, that's like the base of my income. And then I, I produce a lot of records and I get some money producing records. But like the real cake is the fucking writing. Well, I think a lot of folks don't know the intricacies of how everything is split from the master to the writing credits. Uh, you know, I've just learned the whole thing with, you know, mechanicals and sound exchange and how Sirius XM is actually paying way better than any streaming uh, company by a huge, huge margin. Well, the streaming companies are not paying the songwriters. That's like a major problem going on right right. now that the government hasn't caught up to the technology and the technology is moving so fast, but the master side, there's a lot of big money made on the master side. So it's, it's definitely hard as a songwriter right now in the past few years but, you know, there's other ways, you know, there's like radio play and movies and commercials. There's lots of there's lots of other ways. It's like not something that you intend to do. You're just like if you're an artist and you're just like constantly creating music, the songs are going to have a life of their own, generate an right. income of their own. You don't really sit around like kind of it's like same same shit with sampling. It's like you don't like sit around, like make a song to be to be sampled and like wait for it to be sampled. We just make music. It lends right. itself to be sampled and it lends. And, and then that helps like, you know, give us an income that. We're not living on gig to gig or day to day. 
you know, and after doing this shit for 20 years, hopefully you got like, you know, you got you got some songs under your belt and you're making some cheddar. A song like uh, Glove Box Pistol, which I love, it's only about a minute or so long, feels like, again, like almost a a lost track from like one of the Godfather movies for me. Oh man, I love that. I love that. Hell yeah. <laughs> With the trumpet and the organ kind of going back and forth, you know, it feels like, uh, yeah, I'm like, I want them to make a Godfather 5 or something so they can put that in in the opening credits. <laughs> yeah, no, it feels like that's a little, that, that song in particular really feels like a cool little 60 second sequence out of a film for sure. It's, it's hard. I was telling Homer earlier, it's hard as someone who's probably primarily an, a lyricist first to try to analyze uh, songs solely based on sound. But I feel like I'm curious about learning how a song like Glove Box Pistol, even though it's just a one minute nugget, like how does that start? Like how does that song start? Is it just a, a set of chords that builds with you guys jamming together? Or is it something that you're seeing in your mind as, like you said, with the Bollywood stuff earlier, I want to create something that right. harkens this back one, to a certain feeling. No, that one was cool because it wasn't intended to be, to land in that Godfather feeling that it landed in. Uh-huh. It was really, I mean, honestly, that song, I don't know if you remember this, Holmes, but like somebody had asked me to do a demo for Bette Midler, right? Okay. It was on some crazy shit. Can't make this shit up. Somebody asked me to do a demo yeah, for Bette. You remember that, right? It was like a Friday yeah, yeah. night. I was in the studio working on something else. And I get a phone call from Mark Ronson. He's just like, hey, Bette Midler just asked me, told me, Bette Midler just asked me if, you could, you know, if I could make a demo. Can you do it? And I was like, shit, I'm at the studio, man. I'll do it. And uh, I, don't, I don't remember like what the direction was or whatever. But I just like, you know, came up with whatever I thought was the vibe. One minute long little demo. Didn't have drums on it, didn't have horns on it. Just had like the the rest of the instrumentation. And I sent it to him, to her, and I never heard back. And then like, uh, I don't remember when Holmes put drums on it. At some point he put drums on it, we put horns on it. And then uh, when, we were, when I was like just kind of compiling the songs for the album, I remembered that one and it was so moody. And, you know, it was just kind of hours sitting on the shelf and, uh, yeah, put on the record. And then the decision to pull the drums out of the whole song, except for the very last four bars, was made during Mixdown. And that's what really kind of gave it that, like, ominous Godfather, like you're standing, it's like a gunfight about to go down and you're, like, listening to the wind kind of vibe. And then the drums drop at the end for a nasty little... <clears throat> little, little pocket, little nasty four bar pocket you get at the end there. <laughs> Homer, how would you describe the feeling when you are deep in the pocket? Or is uh, it just sort of like a mind, a completely like out of mind experience? Uh, I think that's the ideal situation is it's kind of like a flow state. 
So if you can get there where you're not really thinking about anything and you're just doing what you're doing, then that's that's like when you can really be in the pocket. But sometimes you have to like, you know, kind of think about it a little bit in order to not think about it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like if you're you're playing tennis and you know you're losing the match because you're thinking about how you're going to hit your shots and then you all of a sudden start playing well because you stop thinking just play it's the same type of thing when you get in the pocket you don't have to think anymore you just let let your body do the work Did you call it a flow state of mind? What'd you call it? Yeah, flow state. Flow state. I like that. Did you make that yeah. up? No, that's a real thing. Flow state. It's when you. It's when you like are in flow. So like people get into flow states. A lot of musicians get into it, but you can be an artist in flow state. Even if you're like a business person and you're really like sending a million emails, that's what that can be a flow state. But I think it comes from like meditation. Like meditation. That's where it originates from. Like monks get into that. Do either of you guys meditate? I used to when I was younger, but I don't. I might meditate, but I don't think it's not like typical meditation. <laughs> I like to go on like long hikes and that, that gets me into a cool flow state. <laughs> yeah, I think I do the same thing. I walk my dog every day. and That's like a meditation, but it's not like a technical like sit down and cross my legs and meditate. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like I go for these long walks. And I just kind of like my, my mind just kind of organizes like what I need to do in order of importance, you know, and I'm not and I'm not trying to think about it. It's just like what comes to mind. Just like, damn, I got to call Victor, you know, shit, I got to call my sister, you know, and then and then it helps out with my day <laughs> for real. I love it. Yeah, that is some serious meditation right there. Every day, uh, every day. <laughs> can you describe uh what it was like working with a guy like Charles Bradley. And I know um, he's been gone for a few years now, um, passed away from cancer, but those of us who were able to see him live, um, my group played, I think before him at uh, Hardly Strictly Bluegrass and, and San Fran years ago. And, you know, he's he's humping the stage in a unitard, you know, he's just <laughs> like got the like entire audience wrapped around his finger. Um, and this is a guy sort of like Sharon Jones, who, you know, was completely uh, in obscurity doing James Brown impersonation shows. And then he walks in, uh, you know, to your lives and all of a sudden he's appreciated by a whole younger audience and an international audience. And I think what, you know, the Daptone universe has done for a lot of these artists um, who were, you know, hoping that someone would see their talent. Um, is really amazing. And I'm, I'm curious how that relationship evolved. Yeah. Uh, well, first off, I mean, Charles was just like the best, man. You know, he was such an incredible human being. Um, so unique. And so just kind of, when we met him, he was so wrapped up in this like cocoon, this like kind of hard shell that he had created his whole life from being kind of living in poverty and not getting an education and being illiterate, living in a project, 
he basically like kept all of that inside and really didn't show himself much to anybody. Except on these Sunday nights when he would do his James Brown impersonation and he would really put all of it into that act, which was definitely something to see. I saw him do it many times. But um, our relationship and kind of what you're talking about when we started making records with him for Daptone was to get him away from that James Brown shit, which was very hard. And then as me and him became more and more better and better friends, I was able to get him to just kind of like let that guard down, let that exterior down and show more of himself. And the more of himself he showed, the better the music got, the more excited I would get about what we were doing. You know, it was like, it was like, we, I literally had to tell him to take his wig off before our first concert, because I was like, you have to embrace being Charles Bradley. You are not James Brown. You know, we're like, we're introducing right. you to this audience that's, that we want, like, and it was hard for him because he he wasn't proud of Charles Bradley. He was proud of Black Velvet, his James Brown act, right? You know, so that that took a lot of like encouragement and um, nurturing, I'd say, from us. And he, he had that, you know, he had a, an amazing relationship with everybody in the band. Um, and it was, an, and there's something that was like otherworldly about how he sounded over the music that we were making. And that was like just an incredible thing for all of us, man. Going up in flames track every few years, it's like a theme song to America or something. <laughs> it's true. I, it's so funny you say that, man. I was thinking like the whole past year, the pandemic and Trump and all the fucking ill shit going on in America. The lyrics of his first record, every single song, man, it touches on something. How long? The world going up in flames. Go back to the golden rule. Um, I believe in your love. Like it was just there's his lyrical content on that first record is unbelievable. And it's relevance, man. I think about it all the time, all the time. Or even changes is, you know, the, the other record, you know, that idea that we're all kind of like being forced to reimagine ourselves and, and be a different person than we were, you know. Yeah. We have to do that right now. A lot of our lives have completely uh, been upended and sometimes in a good way. I think a lot of us uh, who make music are realizing that we need to look inward and actually start to create the stuff that we're passionate about. A lot of times I've been forced to sort of adhere to whatever uh, is on your calendar. It's like, well, we got to go play Cleveland tonight and Cincinnati tomorrow. And that's all you're thinking about. And you're not actually creating anything new. And I've probably been that's, able to. I mean, that's, definitely a, that's, a, that's definitely a shortcoming of being on tour for sure. What have you guys uh, learned about yourselves in this year being uh, stuck at home? I learned I have a really fucking serious alcohol problem. Working on that. <laughs> I learned that homeschooling kids is extremely difficult. 
and uh, but 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 it's going well. And uh, I learned that uh, me and my wife have an amazing relationship because we have sustained through this whole thing. And I think our kids are having a great time through this pandemic, and they're not going to look back in too much horror on this time in their life. So that's like the most important thing for me. That's good. Good one, Tommy. <laughs> Homer, what have you learned about yourself? I mean, honestly, I feel like my shit's not as profound. Like, I think I learned that a lot of the decisions I've made leading up to where I am right now, like, I think were good decisions. And so it's like, I'm basically doing the same thing. I think what I've learned about the world is very interesting about the pandemic is that you step back from what you're doing and then you can have some time to analyze it and say, Hey, why am I doing this? You know, I have a lot of friends who are working their ass off and then they had to close their shop or whatever they had to do. And then they're like, man, I'm so much more chill now. Why didn't I think of that before? Um, And obviously a lot of people have hard times too, but there's a lot of, there's a chance to step back and analyze which I think is amazing. And one of the gifts of the pandemic, you know, if you look at the silver lining and for me, like stepping back and stopping, it just made me think like, Oh, I really like, you know, having a recording studio and trying to make records and taking care of my dog and hanging out with my lady. And I'm just really lucky and blessed to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. So, and maybe I also learned that I like to electric scoot. What is that? <laughs> Uh, it's like a stand-up electric scooter, and I use it to get to the studio now. It's like, it's, wow, yeah, it's pretty fun. <laughs> Even through the snow? No, in the snow, you got to ditch that, take the train, or take the car again. Well, <laughs> both of you guys have worked with you know some amazing um, artists, you know, in a lot of different fields. You know, I know Homer, you've worked with Lady Gaga and Saint Vincent and the Kills, and and when you're in the presence of these like icons, you could say, you know, what do you see as the sort of common denominator of greatness or ability that um, only someone like they have? I mean, I think it's just, it really comes down to charisma, you know, and, and hard work. Like there's a cer- certain magic combination of charisma and hard work that these superstars have to have. You have to have some natural type of charisma and then you have to work at it. Um, some people are all charisma with a lot, with very little hard work because they're so charismatic and some people are all hard work, but they had that little charisma to like get them to where they need to go. But it's some type of magic combination of those two things. In my opinion, who is the most impressive person that you've listened to in person that you can remember? Paul McCartney, probably Al Green. Ooh, amazing. Did you record something with Paul? We got to record something with Paul McCartney. And then on day three, we came in and he erased it. And we got to watch him play all the instruments himself. It was incredible. He still got it, man. He was the hardest working, one of the hardest working people in the studio I've ever seen. It was so inspiring. 
Yeah. Same with Al Green. So, same shit. The old man yeah. just fucking working his ass off. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a part of greatness, man. I mean, I've, I've also worked with younger artists and saw that same thing, and I love it. Like, I respond to that as musicians so much, man. Mm-hmm. Like, I've worked with Anderson Pack a couple times, and we will stay at the studio until four in the morning without blinking an eye until it's, like, finished, you know? And he's, like, in the, in the booth just doing vocal, doing background, doing ad-libs, and that's after he, like, we cut the track, he played drums, I played everything else. Uh, that shit is amazing when somebody has that work ethic and that talent. It's just super inspiring as a musician. I was really inspired by this younger artist that I worked with named Sasami, who uh, is a singer, a songwriter, and she's also a French horn, like a classically trained French horn player. And her ability to, to like to to adjust her vocals, like micro tune, and do all these things that like a someone who plays such a difficult instrument can understand. I was. Right. Just, it was just like, I was just like, wow, this is very impressive <laughs> and amazing. When you have a song on your new record, like uh, Cabin Fever, right? With the flute and, and the horns and it's very lush. Um, how do you resist not putting a singer like Al Green or someone that can like just lift it to into the stratosphere? Like, how do you resist doing that? Like, it, in, I guess, <laughs> like I, I, I could almost hear someone singing along to cabin fever and then it like didn't happen and then i had to re-listen to it i was like oh it doesn't need it it doesn't need it but my instinct at first is like god if someone just like ripped into that with the flute behind them (laughs) i mean i guess it's just the intention for me like those songs were that song was actually black thought from the roots was in the studio with us that day we recorded a bunch of songs that he was in the room kind of writing to and vibing off of so they were really loose and the energy was really high. And a song like Cabin Fever, I think we were all playing like different instruments. Like that's Dave, our trumpet players playing fuzz guitar. And like, I think Nick was playing drums and Homer was playing bass and I was playing synthesizer and Leon played flute. That was like one of those really loose songs where the energy was just like on a hundred and everybody, you know, it's, it's, I think we all have so much fun when we're not on our main instruments as a collective because we could still get the same sound, you know? But just like with a with a looseness and, and it's also like a part of the music is like, you know, it being raw and a little fucked up is like a great, is like a part of the sound, you know? But I don't know, that song to me wasn't intended as a vocal for somebody to sing. If, if somebody felt that, I mean, if, you know, the, would feel whatever they want. But to me, it's kind of busy with the synths and the flute and all that because there's no vocal. So there's nothing to dance around. It could just go, the music can just go on a hundred the whole time, you know? Yeah, it's, it's great, man. Uh, the you. last song, the last song I want to ask about um, before I let you guys go uh, is the Duke. Um did either of you watch the Bridgerton show on Netflix? No, what is that? <laughs> it's like a trashy soap opera that takes place in like Victorian England, but like it's oh, all yeah. like really sex and it's sex forward. But the main sexy guy is the Duke. 
<laughs> and oh shit, he's uh, that actor is going to be on uh, SNL this weekend because he's like, you know, a huge star all of a sudden. All the ladies are very excited. Um, if you guys could <laughs> put that song in any TV show or movie from the past, what would it be? Sorry, guys, my phone's about to die. <laughs> I think um, I'm always thinking Breaking Bad. Okay. Because I love that show, or Better Call Saul. Oh, I love yeah. Better Call I love both the Better Call Saul. I can't wait for the next season. Yeah, I love that shit. If I hear any Menahan song in like that, those guys' shows, I'll just be stoked. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's some organ work in that song that feels like, um, you guys ever listen to Chicha music? It's like the music yeah, from, hell yeah, Chicha from Peru. Yeah. 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 So good. That song was recorded so long ago. Like, I feel like it was recorded like 10 years ago and it was recorded. It's called the Duke because like Frank Dukes had the idea for it. He had like a demo of that thing. You, you know what's, you know, what's crazy about that? What? That's actually not why it's called the Duke, man. Really? <laughs> this was so crazy. I sent the whole album to Brian Profilio, drummer of the Buddhist band. And I was like, uh -huh. yo, man, I need some help with the song titles. Can you give me some song titles? And uh -huh. he, having no idea that Dukes had a part to do with the, with the song called The Duke, he named really? that song The Duke. Yeah, swear no to God. Swear that's to God. weird. I oh, was always like, that's a clever name. It's like referencing Dukes who worked on it and shit, but it's, I guess it's no, no, man. It was like serendipitous. <laughs> it was completely by accident. But that's yo, hilarious. that organ sound is dope. First of all, it's like Mike Deller from the Budos band playing organ. It was a Hammond B3, but like, but when I went to mix it, I reamped it and like blew it out. So the organ sound is pretty fucking crazy. It started as a Hammond and then I like put it through like a Leslie again and, you know, and mic that. And uh, I mean, it's like the featured sound of the song, totally. That was like the jump off of the whole song. Hey, there's kind of a bass solo in that song. Really? <laughs> there's a drum break and then a do 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 it's been a minute. And there's some trombone on there. And Leon is also playing a bass clarinet, which I forgot to put on the fucking album credits. But Leon there's like a played, bass clarinet. A, when did he have a bass clarinet? At the Diamond Mine, dude. He just had one laying around the control room and played on a couple songs. Oh, boy. That's the he best played, But like that <laughs> counter melody on the horns on the Duke that's going against <laughs> the trumpet and tenor is a, yeah. is a trombone and baritone clarinet. That's sick. Yeah. Or bass clarinet, you know, my bad. Yeah. Well, I'm super thankful. I'm super thankful that you guys are creating what you're creating right now.
to hear this, but one day I'd love my band Dust Bowl Revival to record a record on Daptone. There's just something about the sound they create there that is exactly what I want. And uh, yes, we are going to be recording some new singles coming up, and there will be a really cool deluxe version of our Is It You, Is It Me album from 2020 coming out in August, including special commentary from the band covering all 13-plus tracks. Please check that out, dustbowlrevival.com, soon for more. Once again, please leave us a kind review on iTunes, and spread the show with your friends and family. If you really want to support the show, znlupatin at gmail.com on PayPal. Any amount is appreciated. The show on the road, as always, is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupitan, and we are part of the BGS Podcast Network. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you out on the trail. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard.